Good morning, beloved. It's a joy to be with you together this morning uh, to bring our attention uh, to God's word. So let's have a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the privilege of hearing your word now. We pray that you would speak to us. Give us ears to listen, eyes to see, minds to understand, hearts to believe, hands and bodies to act and to signify your glorious truth and gospel. Be with us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we want to continue with our series that we've called Embodied. In the series, we've been attempting to sketch a a very basic theology of the body. We started this series because the, the present pandemic really forces us to come to grips with being limited flesh and blood creatures. Now that we are sheltered in our homes, sometimes alone, sometimes with a a couple of others, we must face our physical selves in fresh ways. So the pandemic gives us an opportunity, really, to think deeply about what it really means to be human, to be both soul and body. So our aim in the series is to understand what difference our embodiment makes, what difference it makes when it comes to understanding ourselves, when it comes to understanding our society, and when it comes to understanding God. And so far we've explored uh, a few basic ideas in this theology of the body. In the first sermon, we, we simply understood that the body is a gift from God, that it's very good that it's necessary, that the body limits us for our blessing and it places us in one place for our blessing, and that the body is central to the gospel itself. Our bodies are a reason to praise God. In our second sermon, we we then began to understand sin's effect on our embodiment. Because of sin, we all have disordered relationships with our bodies. We saw how sin came into the world uh, and how it uses uh, pleasure, how it uses falsehood, how it uses fear and shame to distort our relationship to our bodies so that we either idolize our bodies or we denigrate our bodies and we get out of order in our relationship with God. So we thought in Sermon 3 then about how to correct that and so how to reorder our relationship with our bodies and therefore our relationship with God. We said there were four things that we needed to do. We needed to free our bodies from sin. We needed to renew our minds. We needed to then present our bodies to God and we needed to treat our bodies as a temple in which God lives which then brought us to sort of a change in the series where we began to think about not just our personal bodies, but to think about our bodies in social relationship to other bodies. So we began by thinking about how our body makes us social creatures. And we saw the the hints of that in the early chapters of Genesis. The fact that we are made in God's image. Trinitarian God uh, is a hint that we are meant to be social embodied creatures. The fact that God has given us a mission that we are incompetent to complete alone is a hint that, again, we are meant to be in embodied social relationships. Our genders, male and female, 
is a physical sign, hint to social reality of embodied life. Uh, and then finally, the not good, that man should be alone. Again, is an indication that we are made for partnership, we are made for relationship, we are made for society as embodied beings. And our bodies is what are what enable us to express that social reality. And because we are embodied beings, last week we began to think about the issue of touch. We talked about three types of touch, sacred touch, sinful touch, and there's saving touch. In sacred touch, we are attempting to minister to the other in a way that builds them up. It's a holy touch. In sinful touch, we are taking. We are looking to manipulate and to exploit. That's what sin has done to our touch. And in saving touch, we thought about how Christ himself embodied, incarnate, gave himself to redeem us from sin and to make us new creatures and to renew then uh, how we use our bodies and to, and to sort of renew our ability to once again give sacred touch in the way that we were intended. Well, today I want to continue on the theme of the body by looking at another aspect of our social nature and a particular form of sacred touch. I want us to turn to a topic of of vital importance. We've entitled the sermon the, the mystery of the body, and, and we'll see why in a moment. But but to sort of make the topic more concrete, I want us to I want us to think about the body, marriage, and sex. Next week, Lord willing, we will think about the body, singleness, and sex. But today I want us to think about the mystery of marriage. Now I want us to approach these topics not by thinking about the activity of sex. We live in a hypersexualized, sin-driven world. And in the context of a world like this, talking about the activities of sex will, will, will likely lead us in the wrong direction if we jump right to that. Instead, we need to sort of zoom out again, and we need to have another theological discussion, a theological reflection on the body. Before we come to the activity, we need to redeem our ideas of the body, gender, of marriage, and sex. We need a theology of communion, of which the sacred touch of marital intimacy is an expression. Not until we have a good theology of marriage and sex can we redeem the activity according to God's original design. So that's my purpose, to give us a biblical theology of the body, marriage, and sex, so that the purpose of the body, marriage, and sex are clear in our thinking. And to do that, I want us to, to understand something pretty foundational. That our bodies are signs. Our bodies are signs. And our bodies are signs of four things. Number one, they are a sign of self-giving love of self-giving love. And number two, they are a sign of life-giving creativity. Life-giving creativity. Number three, our bodies are a sign of communion with God. Communion with God. And number four, our bodies are a sign of the gospel. We're going to start in Genesis 1 and 2 as we have been doing, but then we're going to kind of survey the scripture a little bit as we go along. Let's, let's take that first point. Our bodies are a sign of self-giving love. 
So in order to understand our bodies, our gender, marriage, and sex, we must, we must understand that our bodies prophesy. Our bodies are theological signs pointing to greater realities. The first reality we want to point out is, is what God means our bodies to point to with regard to self-giving love. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 records the story of man's creation. It also records the story of the creation of the first marriage between Adam and Eve. And then it sort of hints to or points to uh, Adam and Eve knowing each other as one flesh. So the body, marriage, sex are all God's ideas. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then we'll jump forward in the story a little bit to Genesis 2, verse 18, where God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And down to verses 23 and 24. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That's the story of our creation. It's the story of marriage's origin. It's the story of the beginning of our sexual selves. It's a story of how all those things, the body, marriage, and sex, uh, are ways in which we image God, ways in which we show his likeness in the world. That's why marriage and gender and sex are theologies or signs. They point to the nature of the character of the God who made us. Think about it for a moment. Remember, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says that we are made in God's image and likeness. What is God like? He's a trinity. He exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we could ask the question, well, how do they treat each other? What, what are they like as persons in their relationship to each other? What does the Bible tell us? The Bible says things like, God is love. Or God is holy. So the three persons of the Trinity exist in an eternal communion of holy love with one another. And so then, as people made in the image and likeness of the Trinity, we are made then to exist or to show forth that image and likeness of holy love. Christopher West, in his wonderful book, uh, Our Bodies Tell God's Story, writes this, God is an eternal exchange of love and bliss. He's an infinite communion of persons. That's what marriage is. And sex is meant to signify, to be a sign of the reality of an infinite communion of persons. An, ex an eternal exchange of love symbolized, portrayed in marriage and in a conjugal union. Now, at its core, God's love is self-given. In other words, God expresses his love 
by giving himself to us. Think about some of the most famous passages in the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, what? He gave. Or think about Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where Jesus says there, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and what? Give his life as a ransom for many. Or in John 15, verse 3, where Jesus says there, Greater love has no one in this, what? To lay down or to give his life for his friends. When marital love in sex is self-giving, then it is properly expressing divine love. In true marital sex, erotic love, eros, is actually meant to express divine love, agape. We tend to think about those as two different types of love. But in a well-ordered theology that understands the meaning of the body, eros is simply a means of depicting agape, God's love. So marital intercourse is a visible sign of a spiritual divine reality. God is love. This means for marital lovemaking to be a true sign, then, then marital lovemaking must have four qualities based on God's self-giving love in Christ. First, Christ gives his body freely. Remember what he says in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Second, Christ gives his body fully. John 13, 1, he loved them to the end. Third, Christ gives his body faithfully. I am with you always, Matthew 28, 20. And fourth, Christ gives his body fruitfully. I have come that they might have life, John 10, 10. This is what it means to express self-giving love. We offer our bodies freely, fully, faithfully, and fruitfully to the other, for the other. If, if our marital unions are to be accurate signs and prophecies of God's love, then they must have these, these four qualities. They must express intimately and bodily free giving, full giving, faithful giving, fruitful giving. This is what is meant by self-giving love. So, God-like love in marriage and sex is not a taking, but a giving. It is a revealing of ourselves at the deepest levels as a gift to another who is likewise fully and freely giving themselves to us. That, that kind of love expressed in spousal intimacy, well, that kind of love is a self-giving love that shows us something about the nature of God. But there's a counterfeit to this love called lust. Lust is not the same as love. We've been so mentored by the brokenness of the world that we often confuse the two, even in marriage. Some people misinterpret Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7, where he says it's better to marry than to burn. They misinterpret those words to mean something like marriage is the appropriate context in which to satisfy your lust. That's wrong, and it harms marriage. And it distorts the sign 
and the theology of marriage. Let me contrast that with something Jesus says. Jesus says, if a man looks on a woman in his heart with lust, with lust in his heart, he's already committed adultery. Notice now, the, the, the Lord says there, if a man looks on a woman, any woman, including the wife, it does not say if you look on some woman other than your wife. In other words, it's possible for the husband, in this case, or the wife, to look at his wife with lust rather than love. Again, Christopher West says this, if a man approaches his wife as an object of consumption, it's not love at work, it's lust. This is why, he goes on to say, making love amounts to little more than making lust, and this wounds both husbands and wives terribly. See, through lust, we objectify the ones we're called to love. This happens in Christian marriages as much as it happens outside of Christian marriages because we fail to distinguish self-giving love, which images God, from our body-taking lust, which is the devil's distortion. So let me ask you a couple of questions. To married couples, is your conjugal life marked by self-giving love or selfish-taking lust? What effect is that having on you and on your spouse? Or to those desiring to be married, have you come yet to the realization that, quote-unquote, being ready to be married means being ready for this kind of self-giving love because that's what marriage signifies or prophesies? Or, or is your desire to marry really lust, a grasping after, a taking of your own desires, the fulfillment of your own desires rather than another's. See, if you marry out of lust, your marriage will be a constant competition about whose lust will be fulfilled. It will be a constant taking, often in the most intimate place of the relationship. This is why that kind of selfish lust that propels some people into marriage actually makes marriage a burden rather than a blessing to them. So we've got to be clear that the body in marriage, in sex, is a sign of God's self-giving love and nature, and it's meant to sort of define the nature of our marriages. Number two, our bodies in marriage and sex are a sign of life-giving creation. So our bodies are not only a theological sign of self-giving love, they are also a theological sign of life-giving creation. This is why we are engendered beings. We have a biological sex in order to be a theological sign. In the language of the ancient creeds, the, the father begets the son. And together the father and the son beget the Holy Spirit. Uh, in that image and likeness, being made in that image and likeness, we, we could say that Adam begets Eve from his ribs. Then together, Adam and Eve beget children through marriage and marital sex. And all of us have the potential for the same. Our gender, male and female, he made them, 
and marriage and sex are signs or analogies revealing the life-given creative nature of God. So, in Matthew chapter 19, when Jesus is uh, contending with the Pharisees, when they're asking him about divorce, it's interesting to see how the Lord joins together Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27 with Genesis 2, verse 24. He says, in the beginning, he made them male and female. That's Genesis 1. Then Jesus says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So he's making the two genders of male and female foundational and essential to marriage and sex because male and femaleness together in marriage signify the life-giving nature of God. This is what Pope John Paul II calls the spousal meaning of the body. Christopher West uh, sort of helps us think about this issue quite nicely. He writes, The root gen, from which we get words such as generous, generate, genesis, genetics, genealogy, progeny, gender, and genitals, means to produce or give birth to. A person's gender, therefore, is based on the manner in which that person is designed to generate new life. A person's gender is determined by the kinds of genitals he or she has. There are two roles, one belonging only to men and the other only to women, that are irreplaceable and absolutely indispensable for the survival of the human race, fatherhood and motherhood. We understand the gender, genitals, generation link, we also understand why a degendered society is bound to degenerate. You see the connections that West is making for us there, the biblical connections between our anatomy and procreation and the perpetuation of society. Our gendered bodies through marriage and sex enable us to generate new life. That ability to generate new life, which is fixed in our bodies, reflects the image and likeness of God, who is the author of life and who gives new life. So our bodies are prophesying signs that preach about God's life-giving character and power. For the signs to work properly, we must accept and flourish in our bodily genders. So let me make a couple of applications. One, two applications to the cultural confusions we face and one to personal confusions. The fact that our bodies engendered are are prophesying of God's life-giving ability is a reason we cannot participate in confusions of the culture about marriage. For example, we cannot endorse same-sex marriages. Not because we're prudish and cruel and backwards or anything of that sort. It's because those are not marriages biblically defined. Because they do not and cannot speak the theological truth about the body, about marriage, about sex, and about the God in whose image we are made. Or, to use another example, we cannot participate in the culture's confusion regarding gender, trying to reduce gender to only a social construct. And then having 
reduce it to only a social construct looking to give every individual the right to sort of define their own gender. Right now, institutions from Facebook to college universities are experimenting with gender bending and gender definition to the point of, again, allowing each person to define their own gender and use their own pronouns. It's, it's utter confusion. Gender has meaning, beloved. That meaning is baked into the word gender itself, and it's baked into our bodies. So when the Christian remains committed to the biblical understanding of gender, we're doing more than uh, being countercultural. When we remain committed to a biblical understanding of gender, we're not really primarily trying to enter the quote-unquote culture wars. We're being prophetic with our bodies. We're remaining true to the sign of the body, which points to the reality of a God who gives life and gives eternal life. This is where I want to say just a brief word to folks who are experiencing personal confusion about about gender. When Jesus affirms that in the beginning God made them male and female, he is simultaneously affirming his ability to untwist and restore what the world has confused, what the flesh has tempted us to. In the beginning, he made them male and female becomes an invitation to the renewal that God offers us in Jesus Christ. Christ is the one who takes our sins upon himself and gives himself for us on the cross. Why? In order to join us to his new and perfect humanity. To renew us in the image and the likeness of God, Ephesians 4 says. To take what has been twisted and confused, what has been abused and misused, and to renew it to that pattern that exists in the beginning. To fulfill us in male and femaleness. Personally confused and tempted, you can find wholeness and restoration in Jesus. There is a gospel hope for those who have not understood the theology of the body. Which brings us to a third point. Our bodies in marriage and sex are a sign of communion with God. Of communion with God. This is where we come to the mystery of the body. The body, engendered, married, and sexually communing, is a sign of the relationship, actually, that we are meant to have with God. Bodily human intimacy, communion, and sexual ecstasy are an analogy, an analogy for the intimacy and communion that the saints have in union with Christ. Now, I realize that this can all sound a little weird. Uh, This can weird us out if we make the mistake of thinking we're somehow going to be sexual with God. We're not. Perish the thought. It's an analogy, it's a picture, it's a symbol for a greater reality. So my wedding ring is an analogy, a symbol. It symbolizes my love, loyalty, and union with Christy. But which is greater, the ring or the reality that it symbolizes? 
well, the, the metal on my finger is worthless compared to the love and covenant commitment that Christian and I actually have. In, in the same way, the reality of our uh, relationship with God is so much greater and so much better than the human marriages that symbolize it. This symbol of human marriage can also feel weird, uh, can weird us out because sin has so distorted our perception of marriage and sex. Sin has twisted our ideas and our notions, replacing love with lust, replacing self-giving with selfishness. So sex has become dirty in our minds, many people's minds. And so therefore it seems like an inappropriate analogy for our relationship with God. Well, this will all seem weird until we stop to think about how often God himself, across the pages of the Bible, uses this, this very metaphor, this very analogy of marriage and sexual communion as the symbol of his people's relationship with him. It's all over the Bible. Let me give you a few examples. Isaiah 62, verse 5. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Ezekiel 16, 7 and 8, where God is comparing um, Israel to a child that he, he found abandoned by the road and that he raised. Uh, notice what he says now in Ezekiel 16, 7 and 8. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Or in Hosea, chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And then we just jump down to New Testament text, down to the end of the Bible, where um, all of history and salvation are concluded. Revelation chapter 9, verses 6 to 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. He's granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. In Revelation 21, verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Jump down to verse 9. Then came, out of the, came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. See, in the end, Human marriage and sex are not deleted, but actually completed with God. 
heaven is the consummation of our marriage to Christ. Everything that human marriage and sex points to gets fulfilled when we are finally united to Christ in spirit and body. This is why there's no marriage in heaven. The earthly sign is over and the heavenly reality is fulfilled. Signs are merely pointers. Think about driving to some town maybe a few hours away. Along the way, you begin to see street signs that will tell you how many miles before you get to that town. You see a sign that says 100 miles and later one that says 50, one that says 10. But when you reach the town, you no longer see those signs. Why? Because you're in the place that you were going to. You have no need of the sign. You, you really are set free to enjoy the place itself, to enjoy the reality, to enjoy what you had been anticipating. So marriage and intimacy in marriage is a sign of that consummation with Christ that, that we have been anticipating as his bride. The, the ecstasy and the joy and the, and the fellowship, when it is at its sweetest in marriage, it's still a commercial. It's not the end. It's a street sign. Pointed to when fulfillment and satisfaction and joy and spiritual ecstasy and delight and self-giving holy love will forever and always and only be our experience with the God who made us and saved us. So, on the way to that reality, there are a couple of applications for us to make. Number one, we have to stop idolizing marriage. We have to stop idolizing marriage. Stop making it a god that we worship. We have to stop doing this whether we're married or unmarried. Marriage is not the ultimate relationship. Marriage is not the ultimate fulfillment for which we are designed. Marriage is not necessary even to a person's life. Marriage, at its best, is merely a pointer to the one who is our fulfillment, who is our satisfaction, who is our joy, who is our God. The consummation of human marriage with, with all of its uh, promise of happily ever after is going to be replaced with the consummation of Christ and his bride, the church. When the promise of happily ever after becomes the reality of joy inexpressible and full of glory. So we have to stop worshiping marriage and genuinely worship the bridegroom to whom we are married, whether we are in a human marriage or not. Second application. We have to learn to direct our ache for marriage and sex. People sometimes wonder why they have this profound hunger, this desire for marriage and sex. If, if they aren't married or can't marry and if they're not supposed to have sex outside of marriage, why does God give them or allow this appetite, this ache, if they can't fulfill it, if God won't fulfill it? Well, the answer becomes clear when we understand the body as a theology and a sign. The ache for human marriage and the ache for sex in marriage comes from the fact that theology is written on the body. 
It's written into marriage. It's written into sex, which are pointing us to the reality for which we were made. In other words, the ache is given or allowed not to frustrate you with human longing, but to direct our longing to the one who really satisfies it. Direct our longing to Christ. That ache, that hunger, the sign of the body, the sign of marriage and sex is always meant to be fulfilled in, with, and by God, not by man. And that ache and that hunger will be fulfilled by God. Unlike the, the, the sort of fleeting promise of earthly marriage, which may or may not come, the consummation that God has intended this church with him, well, that, that definitely will come. It's the fall of sin that, that makes us try to fulfill that ache with other people rather than with God. When we try to fulfill the ache with people now, we, we make those people carry the weight of pleasure and satisfaction that they were never meant to carry. That's why we crush those people and we we make the ache, ache even worse when we try to satisfy the ache with people we're not practicing self-giving love but but pleasure-taking lust when we practice pleasure-taking lust even in marriage and marital sex we are not prophesying with the body we are prophesying with the body we're telling a falsehood about the nature of god and our bodies and the gospel in marriage so we must learn to read the sign of the body and accept the theology of the body, which points us, not just to human marriage, but through those marriages, points us to God as our great destiny and purpose. You feeling the ache of marriage? Let the, let the ache direct your longing, not to a human spouse, but, but to the perfect spouse, Christ the bridegroom. You're feeling an ache for sex. Let the ache direct you not to sort of selfish, uh, fleshly satisfaction here, but let that ache direct you to a communion and a joy and an ecstasy that is not carnal, is spiritual, and is satisfying well beyond anything temporarily one might gain in this life. That ache turned you to the life-generating, self-giving God who put that ache inside of you so that you might have a homing beacon to come back to him. Which brings us to our final sign. Our bodies in marriage and sex are a sign of the gospel. Paul discusses marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. And near the end, he quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And with that first marriage from Genesis 2 in mind, and all marriages since, the Bible then says in Ephesians 5, verses 31 and 32, these words, And therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's the quote of Genesis 2, 24. Verse 32, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. There it is. The word mystery. This mystery is really another word the Bible uses for the gospel. Something that was hidden once, but now has been revealed. So we see that even in the book of Ephesians, back in chapter 3. 
Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 3, that the mystery was made known to him by revelation. God gave him a revelation of this mystery. Then Paul writes this in verse 4, the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So the Old Testament prophets didn't quite know what this mystery was. But now in the New Testament, with the apostles in the New Testament of prophets, God, by his Holy Spirit, has made the mystery hidden in the old, revealed in the new. And finally, verse 6, he tells us what the mystery is. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, the body of Christ, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Oh, that's the revelation. Gentiles, non-Jews, will share in the blessings of the gospel in the body of Christ through faith. So in Ephesians 5.32, Paul uses this very term, mystery, to describe the true meaning of marriage. Our one flesh embodied mar marriages, which is a reference to the one flesh of spousal sex, are flesh and blood signs of the mystery of Christ's redemption and communion with his church. Put it this way. The cross is the Son of God in self-giving love, dropping down on one knee to propose to sinners to make us his bride. The resurrection is Christ going to make a place for us, a wedding home in his kingdom. And the second coming is Jesus, the bridegroom, coming again to receive his bride unto himself and to consummate things at the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's the marriage dinner before the wedding party takes off. Christopher West summarizes it all really well when he writes, We can summarize all of sacred scripture with five simple yet astounding words, God wants to marry us. That's what the gospel is about. God wants to marry sinners and to make us his bride. The question becomes, will you accept his proposal? Will you accept his love? Will you turn away from a life lived apart from him if you're not a Christian and turn to him and say yes? Will you open your heart to his love which he proved on the cross when you open your heart to his fellowship and communion which he purchased by his blood and his resurrection Christ says will you be mine the spirit says will you say yes so if you're not a Christian now is the time to accept the proposal to marry Christ by placing your faith in him as your Lord and your Savior as your spiritual bridegroom who makes you one with himself as his bride who dresses you in white linen pure and fine the robes of righteousness which are ours through faith in him and can you imagine that your life then will become a marriage with God all of God's self-giving love poured into you all of God's 
life-generating power given to you to make you brand new? Can you imagine the consummation of joy that awaits all of those who believe? If you can see that and you ache for that, say yes to Christ. Place your faith in Him. And Christian, you need to hear, I need to hear the invitation to us again too, the renewal of vows. We're going to hear a renewal of vows in the Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate next week, Lord willing. Christ says, this is my body given for you. There we enter again into a remembrance of the self-giving love of Christ. But it is for us to also enter into a, a more regular meditation upon the fact that our bodies and our marriages and sex in marriage are all pointing away from ourselves and pointing to God in our relationship with God. We need to learn to think rightly about marriage so that we think rightly about God. We need to think rightly about um, the joy of sex so that we think rightly about the joy of communion with God. As we think rightly about those things, we begin to live not just in human marriages, but we begin to live more fully in the realization of our spiritual and divine marriage with God himself, and we open ourselves up to him, to his life-giving love. We open ourselves up to him, to his uh, uh, selfless love, his life-giving power. We commune with him when we learn to read the theology of our bodies. May the Lord give us grace to not only enjoy our earthly marriages, if we are in them or desiring them, may he give us grace more fundamentally to enjoy every day the communion of marriage with him through faith in his son in the power of his spirit. Let's pray again. Father, we pray, give us more of yourself in love and holiness, in joy and wonder and splendor. Give us more of yourself, we pray. And grant us grace to live in these bodies in a way that is true to the sign that our bodies are. But we are not only biological, we are also theological creatures. And we want, O oh Lord, good theology to be preached by our bodies in the way that we live in them and use them, the way that we enjoy them, in the way that they are us. Grant us this grace, we pray, for your glory and for our joy, for our right living, in Jesus' name.